Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. This episode is a live recording of Art Speak, which is a series of talks run by the Adelaide Central School of Art that have been recorded in collaboration with Sala Festival. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We pay our respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present, and emerging. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Heidi Kenyon for uh, this in conversation session as part of the Adelaide Central School of Arts ArtSpeak program. Heidi is uh, exhibiting currently at the Neoteric exhibition in the city with her new work. We shall by morning inherit the earth. Thank you. I always get it in the wrong order. <laughs> me, too, me too, actually. <laughs> um, so I won't give too much of an expanded introduction, Heidi, because I'm really interested to hear you talk a little bit about your journey from art school to being a professional practicing artist where you are now today. Thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah, and with that in mind, with the slides, I've gone kind of right back to the beginning of my arts career. So with art school, I've I've realised in thinking about this question how much I've gone back and forth over the years. Um, so I originally finished art school, so all of my um, art school has been through UniSA, so I initially started at Underdale campus and finished in 2005. And then when I left, and I wouldn't have really considered myself a professional artist at that stage, but was kind of dabbling in things and working in retail and... and then it was probably when I went back to do my honours degree, which is where this body of work came from, that my work as an artist really started to gain momentum and also I think pushing more confidently into sculpture and installation because um, I started off in painting and kind of dabbled in a bit of everything, so I did a bit of glass and jewellery and metalwork and kind of yeah tried as many things as I could and then... I think that's really interesting because yes. you can see that material versatility come through your practice now. Yeah. But you don't see a lot of painting. Yes. No, <laughs> not at all. And yeah, and I don't, you know, I wasn't bad at painting, but I don't think I was ever going to get anywhere with that or have, I guess, I realised how much materiality and that sort of act of making and feeling and kind of unravelling or playing with was such an integral part of what I was interested in. And I was actually, um, and as you know, and I can talk about this a bit later, but I started a PhD this year with Stephen Carson at Uni of Tasmania, and he was back then um, head of sculpture and was the person who said, why are you doing painting? You should be doing <laughs> sculpture. Like, okay. Um, so, yeah, I think there's those little turning points when you don't necessarily know it at the time, but looking back, you can kind of start to see how things evolved. Um, and then out of honours, and so I finished in around 2008, and I was fortunate to be shortlisted for some art prizes and exhibit this work in Hatched at um, Perth Institute of Contemporary Arts, which I think was really 
pivotal in terms of growing my networks and meeting other artists and being able to contextualise what I was doing in a much broader perspective. Um, Hatch is a wonderful opportunity for something like that. So when you say this work, you're talking specifically about the the cut leaves and the shadows. Yeah, yeah. So I sort of cradled them in a shoebox on the plane so they didn't break and was given a very hard time by Monty Massey and who was the other <laughs> artist that year in Crystal Bridge. I'm like, you know, it was, it was a funny time. He's um, much more caring for, for graduate artists these days now that, that he's, he's got his new position here at the school. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I love it. But, yes, it was, you know, those times, I guess, that we all have when you're, yeah, you're immersed in things and you're trying new things and meeting new people and... Um, that was quite a big turning point. And then I guess on from that, I focused a lot on applying for grants to produce new work and showing at spaces, um, you know, artist-run initiatives and places like Felt Space and Project Space at CAXA, which for those of you who don't know was the Contemporary Arts Centre of South Australia in Porter Street that then combined with the... Experimental Sorry. Art Foundation to become ACE. I always get my acronyms <laughs> mixed up. Um, and what did I do from there? So then I got the Ruth Tuck Scholarship and I was able to do some travel and I went to New York and the UK and did an, a workshop with a bunch of other artists from around the world kind of working collaboratively, which I can talk about a bit later, but just kind of could continue through. Um, and then, yeah, continued working in the arts. So I guess in terms of how have I sustained this as a career, I haven't really ever made a lot of money from my practice. I've been able to, you know, sometimes break even or get grants to make work or occasionally make work that's perhaps saleable and not fragile installation one-off pieces but um, I've focused on work in the arts more broadly outside of that so I've worked or I've worked in retail but I worked at Handoff Academy for a while and you know teaching workshops and those sorts of things um, which I found has given me a bit more freedom to pursue my ideas without you know I mean like even if you were focused on trying to make money it's who can do that not many people um and then but most recently you've been working with Guildhouse most recently working with Guildhouse so then yeah so then I I did a master's degree as well and then after that I've been working as the Guildhouse program officer and yeah just continuing to what was I going to say before that I did some more travel remember travel (laughs) when people did travel that was great um so, yeah, I got this Qantas Award, which gave me 10K just to use in flights, which was amazing. amazing. So that really helped my professional practice and did a residency in Venice. And so there's some images of um, stuff in Venice. And then, yeah, working at Guildhouse, which has been great to, I guess, still very connect. You know, Guildhouse has almost a 1,000 artist members and so you're very kind of connected to the pulse of what's happening but being able to use the skills that I've gained over the years to help other people in their professional development. Um, I think it's something that often um, is underestimated that value of an artistic community of being connected to something of seeing what other people are working on and often it's what drives us knowing that there are other people out there making work. Definitely and it can be 
you know, a lot of people do get that sense when they're in art school or they're having critiques or regular forums and things, but once you're outside of that environment, it can be a bit isolated, particularly if you're not working in a shared studio space or, you know, in recent years with COVID and restrictions that we've had and less kind of in-person events and things. Totally. And it's interesting the way you frame the discussion about your artistic career, talking about these roles in the arts that have supported you and enabled you to make work. Mm. But I think that it is also something that, you know, informs work or or can sort of drive work as well. Absolutely. Definitely. I think that's been, yeah, a really critical part of what I've been doing for sure. Uh, Heidi, it's a really beautiful image when you talk about going over to the Hatched show, cradling your little cut leaves in a shoebox on your lap. And it does make me think it sort of almost neatly summarises a couple of aspects of your practice, the idea of care and also the working with natural materials. I think there's probably a few people in this room that might not have had the chance yet to see uh, We Shall By Morning Inherit the Earth. Is, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> that you got right it. Right? Yeah. You got it. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that installation looks like and what the different elements of it are? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the exhibition space is in the railway station um, and it's a quite grungy renewal essay site, like beautiful old building with lots of character. Um, and so there's a small kind of room tucked away fortuitously in part of that space and when I was talking to Ray Harris at the beginning and I was saying that I want I mean I might have to construct a space or I want to kind of create a darkened space and she said there's actually there's a little room do you want this little room which is great because there's a beautiful you know dilapidated wall and it's just perfect um so I've created this immersive installation where the participant or the viewer is invited to enter this darkened space and come and sit at ground level inside a circle of growing mushrooms. And so there's a few sensory elements to it. So there's quite an earthy smell of the mushrooms and the straw, which wasn't something that I'd given a lot of thought to really, but it is something that people have commented on a lot, the smell. Um, And what I've done is I've connected these mushrooms to some equipment that reads electromagnetic energy. And I've sent this data to my brother, who's a London-based music producer, and he's created a soundscape for this work. Um, so the so you come into the, this darkened space and you see the mushrooms, and then you hear this sound, which is kind of um, synthesising various notes or chords that have been assigned to the varying energy levels. So I did a period of recordings over probably a couple of hours, and have sort of sent snippets and then yeah as those levels change they've been assigned different sounds um so yeah so you're invited to come in and sit with the work and yeah listen to it and I guess you know witness the the detail of it and I wanted it to be something that was quite intimate and kind of maximum like one or maybe two people at a time. Um, it's a very contemplative, meditative space yeah. that you've created. And I think it um, what you allude to, that sort of like the depth of the sensory experience goes beyond the visual to the order, auditory and the, and the olfactory as yes. well is a big part of creating that kind of uh, nestled sense 
with that work. Definitely. And I had, it, it took me quite a while to work out uh, some of the detail of like how I was going to light the work or how I was going to place the mushrooms or how I was going to make, you know, more initially I wasn't necessarily thinking of boxes. Like I thought there might be some earth elements or on the ground, but kind of nutting out those details was a bit of a tricky one for this work. But what I always knew from the beginning was the type of experience that I wanted it to be. So that came first, I guess, that sense of um, slowing down, being in the space, having those sensory elements, having a darkened space, coming down to ground level, you know, and even that kind of circular element. Those were the things that I knew that I wanted and then it was kind of working backwards or, yeah, testing things out to kind of pull it together. This work isn't the first time that you've worked with not just natural materials but living organisms. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of those works, but I'm also interested in, in how you would like audiences to read these works. Do they have an environmental context to, their, to the way you hope they're understood? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely there is an environmental context, but I guess I've never made that really overt or have kind of focused a bit more on the relationships than trying to um, convey a really clear environmental message. It's more about how we are connected to other living things and what our relationships are or what our empathy might be for those things or how there might be similarities. I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff about mushrooms, you know, mushrooms are more related to humans than they are to plants. They um, take in oxygen and they release carbon dioxide. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of about interconnectedness. And I guess some of those themes of, of interconnectedness go back through my practice in general. So if it's not natural materials, I've worked a lot with found objects um, and have looked a lot at manifestations of memory or meaning and objects and rituals um, but I guess with this work it comes from examining some ideas around sustainability more consciously and how um, the context of empathy might prompt social change. Mm. Um Previously, some of these works that have that have uh, articulated sounds from natural organisms have worked with trees and pot plants. There is that sort of sense of that shift towards, uh, as you say, trying to have a more empathic engagement with these things, mm -hmm. thinking them less as decorative mm -hmm. items and more as living organisms. What does the shift from the plant to the mushroom bring to the work? Part of it, part of the reasoning behind that was around sustainability and the idea of, like, growing my own materials. Um, and, yeah, like you say, it's, uh, I, you know, instead of kind of, like some of them have used sapling trees, but, you know, they've had to be in pots or I'm taking them from a nursery context into a gallery context and then I've then kind of donated trees to different people and community groups and stuff so they have a life beyond that exhibit but again I liked this idea of seeing kind of a full cycle and being in that from the very 
beginning, so seeing these mushrooms come from, you know, and they grow very quickly, which has been the biggest challenge of this work, but they'll go from, you know, smaller than your fingernail to as big as the palm of your hand, sometimes within a matter of days. So I've just worked out I've almost done a hundred harvests for this exhibition and I've had to be in about every 36 hours to change stuff over and clean them up and rebag them. It's, yeah, it's, I hadn't anticipated the level of care and maintenance that would be required to have constantly fruiting mushrooms over a period of six weeks. That's um, fascinating because it, it talks about the, the, uh, the variability of natural materials yes. and it also goes back to this idea of care that, it, that yes. I think is a big part of your work as well. And, and I think because there's been such a time commitment that's involved, like it, it feels like they have become children in a way and that you know, round the clockness of it and misting them and checking on them and checking on the humidity, like it feels like the time that's spent breastfeeding a baby or like I have other times in my life where I've gone, yes, that kind of sense of losing all sense of time and round the clock and I'm dreaming about mushrooms every night and it's in every waking hour, yes. Yeah, so so bearing in mind this intimate relationship, I'm assuming you're not eating them when they... <laughs> I am eating ah. them as well, which is even weirder and it came up in one of the artists talks we had the other day and I'm like oh yeah it feels feels a bit strange but um also gifting many many yeah lots of gifting of mushrooms to to volunteers sitting the show and friends and neighbors and anyone who will take them and I think you were telling me that one of the reasons why you need to get them out there is quite quite an unexpected one as well. Yeah, so they so if you don't harvest them, once they get to a certain stage of growth, they'll start releasing spores, which actually looks quite beautiful. <laughs> and then it's this mist of stuff that happens, but um, not so great for public health. So some people do have allergies to mushroom spores, um, and I think even if you don't, if that keeps happening and it builds up over a period of time, it's it's not so great. Um, so, yeah, it's important to be really onto it and really onto the weather as well. So, like, last week we had a period of quite high humidity and everything just went nuts, you know, at the ones growing at home and my bathroom, the ones in the show, and everything was just, mm. yeah, going crazy. So I had to be in every day for a period of time. Um but, yeah, and I think also working with – because I'm using straw as well and I've developed a bit of asthma from doing so I have to make sure that I use a mask every time I do it now. But that repetition of yeah. that constant exposure to it, like I'm, yeah, have started getting a bit chesty. I'm getting blisters from pushing this trolley of mushrooms. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm sure we've all had works where, yeah, that repeated act, you start to kind of take that – on that it manifests in physical ways which yeah so I think maybe next step is thinking about sustainability of practice as well as sustainability <laughs> in environmental theme yeah well it is very much like a little ecosystem that you create yes. and, that, and that the mushroom is not the only living organism in there thinking about the audiences and yourself as Absolutely. well about how all these things interact and the influence they have on each other I think gets back to the core of the work as well absolutely so yeah the core of the work really is about that interconnectedness and I think I mean there's a lot more research coming out about the role of mycelium um, networks and how I guess nutrient extra exchange and how trees can kind of look after other 
family members or send nutrients or send warning signals and, you know, it's the oldest, mushrooms are the oldest living organisms on Earth, I think. I could be making that up. But, um, yeah, there's, yeah, the, the more that you delve into it, you know, it goes so deep. It's really interesting. Um, and what was I going to say about that? Collaboration and nutrients. Oh, and that sort of relates to part of the reason of uh, connecting with my brother as well and having been separated from him from a period of time because of COVID, that we can often be on the same wavelength so we might not talk for months and months and then we'll both be, you know, bringing something up and really on the same page or have these points of crossover that I don't necessarily have in the same way with anyone else in my life. And I think it's interesting, you know, we can be so far apart and kind of be circling back to the same thing. So there's some kind of parallels. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that's fungal spores that's connecting you? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but uh, that's a really interesting thing because the, the music that your brother has created for this work, sound is, has, been a, has been a repeated element in your work. And also um, I think we have images in here of your quite spectacular piano shifting through the wall work as well. So mm. the motif of sound, the idea of sound is something that ties into your Yeah, work. absolutely. Do you want to talk a little bit about what, sound and and music means for you and and how you see it operating your practice yeah absolutely so when I first did that piano work it was in 2009 so not long after leaving um art school for the second after finishing honors and it was a site specific work for felt space because you can stand in the doorway and see both halves of the piano so it looks like it's pushing through the wall and there was a funny story that at that time that building used to be shared with the Housewives Association of South Australia, which I didn't know was still a thing, but it was a thing in 2009. I don't know if it's still a thing. Um, but they used to have meetings there maybe once a week or once a fortnight, and one of the women was outraged that the landlord had – she thought that the landlord had let me cut a massive hole in the wall and push a piano through it. <laughs> and so I was thrilled with that feedback that I would carried off – the illusion, like I'd made it, yeah. you know, look so real that it was believable that it had happened. Um, but I guess... My, well, it's similarly as unbelievable what you actually did, which was to cut the piano. Which was a bit ridiculous, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots of, and mostly done by hand because... You know, I chose a really strange angle and so lots of, like, tape and um, laser pointers and different measuring tools. But, yeah, hacksaws and Japanese saws and, you know, I developed kind of a very specific attachment to very particular types of saws from using that work, which I think some people... I've become known for using particularly these Japanese saws. And now you can make great recommendations of like, this saw is perfect for I cutting can. a piano in half. I can, so, uh, exactly. It's, it's good to know. So if anyone wants to know, you know, I've got the intel. Um, and so what was I going to say about this? Uh, I guess I'm interested in, in, in my work with found objects and things in general, and I, it ties a little bit back to kind of memory and traces, but I really like kind of analogue technologies and um, I guess the artefacts of music and so I've done some work with records and with cassette tape and and the original showing of this piano work there was no sound and so I liked 
the, the idea that there was some kind of embodied sound or sound that was felt and that pushing through the wall was a little bit about cheekiness or maybe there was something slightly sinister, I'm not sure, but this idea of a little bit of a kind of animism thing, but thinking about, um, yeah, if sound became movement, what would that look like or um, how can something kind of take on those memories of what it's been used for and then show those in some kind of playful way. Um, and To me, the works often speak quite a lot about translation, that idea yes. of like translating the uh, the biological processes of the plant into sound and similarly translating that sort of idea of the way move, uh, music might move through a space into a visual language with the piano. Absolutely, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I didn't bring it up, but the first thing I wrote here, which I didn't say, was that I think it's about communication. <laughs> so making viewers or participants kind of aware of a presence or giving a voice to something as this gesture of connection or collaboration. So I'm glad that you understand my work better than I do. Oh, we're just collaborating. <laughs> we're collaborating. Um, but, yeah, definitely it's that gesture. And, you know, obviously I guess it's a bit like, you know, putting out messages for other planets and then this idea that someone would find those things and go, this is a load of rubbish or this is meaningless and the piano or the mushrooms might think, what the hell are you doing? But it's that, so it could be lost in translation, but it's that idea of, yeah, gesture or um, reaching out or looking for a point of connection with another thing. Um, and... Yeah, with the plant stuff and with the mushroom stuff, you know, awareness of our own conductivity, you know, we conduct electricity too. So what, yeah, what do we have in common? And um, I think the other thing about music is just being inspired by other creative media in general, which I think a lot of artists do, so whether that's music or literature or other things, but there are those, you know, when you're making work and you listen to something over and over, or those things that kind of plant in your subconscious. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you you raised something interesting there with the, you mentioned just as an aside there, this idea of like sending messages out into the mm. cosmos and this idea of communicating with something that maybe can't communicate back or, or something that might not even be there. Looking at a lot of your past works, using the camera obscura or shadows, some of the sculptural interventions with the, the disembodied white hands and the piano, there feels something almost spectral occurring. They're very beautiful, but it feels a little bit like they kind of haunt the spaces that they're in is that a deliberate um effect that you're aiming for with your work um i think so i think it's yeah it, i'm very happy with that reading of it and i guess well, throughout my practice what i've been really interested in doing is using very everyday very familiar objects and materials and natural materials and perhaps shifting something or presenting something in a new way so that there can be a little bit of a double take or a little bit of a slowing down or um, 
layers that reward curiosity. So sometimes I've been so caught up in some particular detail, like piano is a good example, or even this mushroom work, which some people have gotten into the space and missed entirely. <laughs> but sometimes I've been so caught up in something like, and I remember saying to my partner, I just want to do this to a level that I, like, I don't want anyone to notice it at all. And he's like, you don't want anyone to notice your work at all? <laughs> I'm like, yes. No. But yeah, that sense of um, if someone does take the time that something may unfold or become visible or there might be... Um, yeah, I guess there's, you know, there's a touch on animism in some of it, but also thinking about phenomenology and how we focus on senses and experience and some ideas around reverie and memory and absence and presence. The camera obscura is quite an interesting one. And camera obscura is, you know, the history goes way, way back that were used in the 1600s by people intentionally to kind of trick viewers or trick people that they were, what they were viewing were manifestations of the occult or of magic or visions into the future. So it's, you know, it's for those of you that don't know, it's a very simple thing, the camera obscura or the pinhole camera. You know, you've got a hole for light to pass through and if you have a surface for that to focus on or a screen of some kind, what you get is an image of what's outside, back to front and upside down, and it's just the way that, you know, lenses work, that cameras work, that our eyes work. It's a, a natural thing that happens. But it certainly makes it feel very uncanny. Yeah, sort it of feels familiar, really uncanny. But yeah. Strange at the same time. Um, but yeah, but I love that idea that they were used to, you know, trick people. Um, and so, yeah, that definitely ties into it. Well, with what you're saying as well, your your partner's response to this idea of you working on something until your intervention becomes invisible. Mm. And it seems to me that what you're striving for there is to create a sensation of magic in that encounter, that this is just something that has occurred. Definitely. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, I think one of my, you know, we have artist statements that we recycle or use over a number of years, and I think the word magic was, I don't know if it's actually still in there, but was definitely in there for a long time. So, yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, we, you touched on this before, but you also work collaboratively. Um, we Shall by Morning features sound elements created by your brother, but you've also worked with other artists like Rosina Possingham and Laura Wills and your non-human collaborators as well. What does this strategy bring to your work? Is it a, a matter of seeding control or something else? Um, I think that is an interesting aspect for sure. I think um, collaboration over the years have been, has been something that I've pursued quite intentionally as a professional development exercise. So um, I've created the work, one of the slides that you'll see with this, I can't remember what we called it, but this work that I created with Rosina Possingham and Laura Wills. So there was, uh, we did a workshop with a South African artist called Francois Nance and his idea was the art of Mongo, which was um, making things from rubbish or recycled materials or discarded materials. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Um, so I think that, that one was a very collaborative one and that we all just kind of kept bringing bits to it and, and seeing how it unfolded. But outside of that, I've pursued collaboration of things that sit quite 
outside of my practice. I've done, I've kind of um, volunteered as a performer in a few works by David Cross, who's a, a Melbourne-based artist and he was previously based in New Zealand. Um, he, he makes these kind of performance and installation inflatable works that, yeah, ask people to enter into or, you know, interact with in different ways and push boundaries around, you know, some of them have had things which are like a great height and there's kind of a fear of falling or, you know, there's some interesting things that happen that sit very much outside of my practice but I've learned a lot from being involved in those kind of works um, and I've been involved in some performance works with Henry Wolf in... Um, yeah, and their practice in kind of moving image and, and photography and performance and ideas of care and vulnerability. And there are, I guess, similar themes in my practice as well, but their work is, you know, the end product is very different. And, yeah, I've learned so much from, you know, workshopping some of those ideas. And one that I wanted to go back to in one of my initial points of travel, I did this international artists workshop in the UK where we were asked to work collaboratively with 17 other artists on a piece for a festival which was kind of a music festival music arts festival but it, it was it was a big ask and there was a period of I can't quite remember it maybe a couple of weeks or something and a lot of the artists there were sculpture or installation artists and I think the people involved thought that we were going to create something or fabricate some kind of thing and we all just ended up doing these little performative interventions. Um, but it also turned a little bit into Lord of the Flies, like trying to work collaboratively with 17 other people from very diverse practices. And yeah, I definitely had a few moments of like hysterical crying and laughing at the same time and just like not knowing, you know, well, absolutely. That sounds like pushing the, the sort of limits of collaboration. Absolutely pushing and the limits. a wonderful way to sort of start, well, maybe a terrible way of starting a collaborative practice, yes. but also really interesting to see the limits of it yes. right from the get-go. Yeah, it could have been a great reality TV show, that one, I think. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I can, you know, if I'm thinking about control, I can be a bit of a control freak in my own practice but then you know also set myself up for things like the mushrooms which I can't you know I can't control the weather and I can't there are so many things that I can't control and so there's that push and pull between you know having a vision or perhaps having some kind of obsessive perfectionistic tendencies but then putting yourself on the line or pushing those limits just being open to what's possible oh that's what I wanted to say actually I had a little quote Sorry, I feel like I'm ranting now. No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, a quote from Rebecca Sona in a book called The Field Guide to Getting Lost that really resonates with me in terms of thinking about how you want people to experience your work or maybe having, you know, having some ideas or things that inform it, but like leaving that openness for things to unfold and I guess seeding control in that way. Um, and so she talks about the idea or the form of the tale that's not yet arrived or what must be found. It's the job of artists to open doors and invite in prophecies, the unknown, the unfamiliar. 
It's where their work comes from, although its arrival signals the beginning of the long disciplined process of making their own. And so she talks about scientists doing this too, but they transform the unknown into the known, hold it in like fishermen where it's artists get you out into that dark sea. And I love that idea and that image, and I guess particularly in working with some technologies that, you know, there might be a biology aspect or a physics aspect in terms of the electromagnetic energy or the sound or the kind of photographic stuff but I like to just kind of mess with it in a way or push into what I don't quite know and see what happens and I think that's part one of the most interesting things for me about making work making sure that you leave that space to see what can unfold because in a lot of ways the end product for me, I guess, in my practice becomes a lot more interesting than if I had a very clear idea of exactly what I wanted for the begin from the beginning. I might not be open to some of those, you know, and but sometimes it's even things that go wrong or things that don't turn out as you expect, but you discover some magic in mm, that. Absolutely. Sort of building in that element of chance or risk to yes. open up the possibilities for discovery, even if it's the discovery of dark water or the unknown. I think yeah. it's a really fascinating way of being aware of how you work and being able to build that that search of the unknown into mm. your own practice is marvelous yeah and risky and can be quite stressful mm. <laughs> but i think it it pays off Heidi, i'd love to leave a little bit of time for questions but i did want to ask what you've got coming up next because you did allude to a phd project that you're working on yes yeah, so i've just started a phd with the university of tasmania but working from here but i'm hoping to do some field trips when it becomes easier to travel um and so the the scholarship that i applied for was centered around sustainability and using recycled materials or reuse materials and objects which I think ties into my practice really well but I thought it could be a really good chance to more deeply examine my practice with some of those lenses in mind um, and the way that I've positioned my starting point is thinking about collaboration with nature or with other living things kind of as a driver for social change um so that the i guess the sustainability aspect is one of sort of a moral philosophy um and yeah i'm also really keen to investigate my local environment more and i guess now having a studio at home in eden hills and having moved from Bowden and previous to that being in the city to a much greener space has been um, something that I guess was became more important with the pandemic and, and having two young children in an apartment and you know public spaces suddenly being closed down, but also um, the work that I showed earlier with the hands and the rocks was based on thinking about my daughter going out and collecting rocks and filling her pocket with rocks and always bringing these kind of things home and, you know, they'd end up in the washing machine or in corners of the house and rocks and feathers and bits of nature. <laughs> and then I had that realisation where I thought maybe she's, you know, it was annoying and frustrating, but maybe that actually is the most important thing. Like maybe that is she's trying to 
fill a gap or there's something that we're missing that we need to prioritise. Mm. Um, I think I've gone off on a big tangent. I think but... it's a beautiful <laughs> tangent, Heidi. Thank you for that. Maybe now if we have any questions for Heidi, anyone that has any... Um, I've yeah. got a question for Heidi. Mm. Um, it's definitely seems like you have really wide-ranging research interests and this, the latest work with the mushrooms, it just seems like a huge field that you could just get lost in endlessly, you know, the scientific aspects, mm. anthropomorphic aspects, mm. everything. Um, but I guess, how do, you, how do you, what is your strategy for not getting lost in the endless curiosity of all these, all these fields and materials and processes that you utilise? And how do you, because your, your work is so tight and um, so discreet the outcomes, I guess, I'm amazed that you, you can find the, you know, the pathway to a very particular experience and material outcome. Do you have a strategy? That's good to hear, actually, because I think sometimes I feel like my work is too meandering, <laughs> that it's too... Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, and I am... Not sure what my... I feel like sometimes I do just get lost in it. Um, but maybe there are things that I always come back to or circle round with. So there's always some stuff about sensory experience and there's always some clear ideas about... often about sight specificity... Um, that put those boundaries on the work, so how I want people to enter into a space or what I want to be felt or perceived that kind of puts some boundaries on it. I was thinking too, and I wouldn't recommend this as a strategy, but I think one of the things that I do is maybe really go too far and push too hard, like this mushroom work which I'm spending, you know, 35 hours a week maintaining to the point where I'm like I can't look at mushrooms anymore so I will just flood myself with things to a point of saturation that I then need some space from it which yeah I don't think is an amazing strategy I'm um, sure that's just the spores talking <laughs> maybe yeah they've, you know, they're in my brain um, but yeah I think there are probably some clear ideas about experience that always come into the work or about aesthetic or about uh, the idea of different levels or layers or, you know, having things to unpack or discover. And there's always some aspects around memory or traces of the past or um, coming back to materiality and the object itself and what I can learn from that or how I can unpack that. I'm not sure how well I've answered your question. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's going out but then coming back in and, and each time you gather new information and you, you know, you reposition, yeah, doing that fieldwork and then circling back. And I guess things like this are a really good opportunity to, you know, you don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily do this if you're in a call and sit down and go back through your practice and, doing those things does help um, contextualise and position where you're going in the same way that 
art school can do that or, yeah, talking with peers or having critiques, all those things kind of help position or provide some framework. Wonderful. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Heidi, can you please join me in thanking Heidi Kenyon? <laughs>